Resiliency Within, with host Elaine miller Karras is brought to you by Trauma Resource Institute, Incorporated. Visit TraumaResourceInstitute.com. Welcome to Resiliency Within, featuring your host, Elaine miller Karras. In unprecedented times, our beliefs and well-being are put to the test. When we take the things we've learned in life and look at challenges in a whole new way, we learn to develop resiliency, which can then be used to promote healing and personal strength. Now, here is Elaine miller Karras. Welcome. I'm Elaine miller Karras, and um, I'm, I'm here in California thinking about our fellow um, friends and colleagues in Kentucky. And we have decided to change the direction of the show today. I have with me Dr. Michael Sapp, who's the Chief Executive Officer of the Trauma Resource Institute. And what we're going to be talking about is um, to hopefully maybe add some additional assists for the people of Kentucky or anyone who's experiencing something where they're feeling distress and they're not quite sure what to do with themselves. The events of the past week in Mayfield, Kentucky and the surrounding areas have shown us the tragedy of climate events and how every person in the community is affected. We must not forget also the mental health challenges that can occur as a result of these experiences. Mike and I have been literally in many places around the world. We've been to Nepal after the earthquake. We were spent a lot of time in the Philippines after um, Typhoon Hunan, also known as Typhoon Yolanda. We've, I've responded to fires, um, to human-made disasters, shootings, and we have learned that there are certain simple ways with the community resiliency model that can help restore well-being while you're in the thick of it and also in what will be the long months weeks, months, days, sometimes years afterwards when you're rebuilding after such an event. Um, What we've also learned is that when um, you are experiencing what you all are going through in Kentucky right now, is there are things that affect you not only only emotionally, but also physically, also in the ways that you think. Also, it can affect how you are with the people that you love. It can affect your spirituality. Like if you are a person who believes in a higher power, you may say, what in the heck just happened? How could you forsake me? So there's a lot of questions that sometimes come up as we um, have these experiences. But what we have learned is that when you can start paying attention to the sensations that are connected to your distress and then also start cultivating your well-being, that it changes. And I think over the, the last year on the show, we've talked a lot about this, but this is really the first time we've been directed to something so serious that's happened as a, as a result of a natural disaster. So Mike and I, um, and I'm going, to tell you, I'm going to say a little bit more about Mike. Mike, there's more than the, the chief executive officer. Um, you're also a senior trainer for both the trauma and the community resiliency models. You've been to so many places with me and also without me providing um, help to individuals. Um, you also are a co-author of um, the book, <laughs> the book that I also wrote called The Book, um, Building Resiliency to Trauma, the Trauma and Community Resiliency Models. And actually, we're working on a second edition of the book right now. But Mike does many things. I am very happy to also call him my friend, not only my colleague. So Mike and I are going to get started. And Mike, do you want to say something before? We're, we have um, those of you that are listening, and we're also um, live on Facebook on Resiliency Within. We are going to show slides, but for those of you that are listening, we're going to talk about everything that also is presented on the slides on the Facebook Resiliency Within um, uh, portal. So go ahead, Mike. Anything you want to say as we get started? 
Sure. The, the only thing I would, I would add, and I know we'll probably say this uh, maybe multiple times, I don't know, but like you said, I think in the, in the wake of a disaster like this, in the wake of tragedies, oftentimes we need to focus on both the physical needs as well as the emotional mental health needs. And oftentimes the physical needs are vital, important. We need to address those. We're not saying this is an either or issue. It's a both and. It's how can we address those issues? How can we help give the support and necessary help to to, uh, find shelter, food, you name it, and recovery. But also as we're doing that, let's not ignore this other side of how do we help uh, someone um, restabilize in the immediate aftermath well, of this. Well, I think you're bringing up a really important point because I've been to so many disasters. And one of the things I've seen, for some of you, you may feel like, I feel paralyzed. Mm-hmm. I've had people say that to me. And so oftentimes there will be um, tents set up in your community that will be FEMA, will be all different kinds of resources that you can start to apply for different services. But if you're frozen and almost like you can't even you know, walk over to the tent in order to fill out the paperwork, it's also can be really hard to even concentrate. So, one of the things that we've learned is that if you can start to pay attention to how you cultivate um, this well-being, it also can help you do the things you have to do to start in the recovery process. So, I, you know, so I don't think it's an either or, it's really both. And we're hoping that some of the information that we're going to share with you will help some of you that are going to be listening to this, to this uh, broadcast today. So I'm going to go ahead for those of you that are on Facebook Live to um, share our Facebook, um, uh, to share our slides. And Mike and I are just going to start talking. And I think, what, Mike, I'm just going to have, I'm going to just invite you to, uh, to begin. Um, sure. And I'll start with this. With the, Well, what is the community resiliency model? Can you tell us a little bit about it, Mike? Absolutely. In, in brief, the community resiliency model really is a set of six what we call wellness skills, which can be used across a lifespan. It can be used across different cultures. It can be used with different literacy abilities. It doesn't require someone to have um, years and years of schooling, if any at all. Uh, and it can be used... And I think this is really an important piece. It can be used with the activities of daily living because I think when we experience uh, adversity and challenges and, and tragedies like like this, the activities of daily living become really, really hard. And these skills ideally can be used because they're based on cutting edge <laughs> neuroscience uh, can help re-regulate our nervous system because it really is is predicated on the on the assumption that our nervous system responds to stress and trauma and tragedy in very similar ways as anybody else that has that is walking this planet, regardless of income level, regardless of uh, the color of our skin, that our nervous system responds in very similar ways. And so these wellness skills are about helping our nervous system uh, re-regulate in the wake of something like this. And I also want to point out too, that for all of you that are there with as, as adults, worried about your kids, you know, how do we help children? And we'll, we'll try to integrate some of that in, in um, our conversation today. But one of the things I've, I've, I've noted is if you can be your best self with your child, that really does help your children. But sometimes we'll say, oh, they're so young. Children are so resilient. Um, this is not going to impact them in the way maybe it's impact me. Well, that's really not true. So that children are affected by these kinds of events as well. And how we attend to them right now and in the future is really important. So if you're a minister, if you're a caregiver, a teacher, a parent, 
it's very important to try to do things that help the children be children. And oftentimes, um, there also can be in the some of the places that you all are, because if your houses are gone, there can be activities that are being set up for kids, whether it's art, whether it's you know, playing ball, whatever it might be, help the children do these kinds of positive activities that can help them as they're going through these experiences right now. So the next question that we want to ask all of our listeners, and this is so important for all of us um, during these times, and and for those of you that are suffering, is what or who gives you strength? And what or who helps you get through hard times? And I'm going to ask Mike if he could maybe give us his answers to these questions while our listeners are thinking about what might be the answer to that for them. Yeah, for me, uh, my answer to these questions are is often in this order, my faith, my family. I have a wonderful, wonderful wife that is so supportive of me, that is so uh, kind and compassionate. I have two wonderful teenage boys that are equally, I, I mean, I, I marvel at it at some times, are equally as kind and compassionate. And so, um, those are things that often help me get through uh, hard times. Well, and I also happen to know that your dear wife's birthday is tomorrow. It so, is. on the show, I'm going to do a Shannon shout out saying happy birthday to you. Yeah. Um, and so, with just even when you think about her, you just had a big smile on your yeah. face. Mike, what happens inside of you when you think about your, your, your wonderful wife and your kids? You know, I can't help but smile. I also notice uh, almost an energy in my chest that goes all the way down, I kid you not, all the way down through my knees into my toes. And oh, it's- my goodness. And, you know, and, and Mike's not a short man, so that's a lot of distance there. <laughs> How tall are you? 6'5 or six something? 6'5. Five. Yeah, yeah, don't you have a 6'8 <clears throat> son? So, I mean, I that's, a, that's pretty, pretty, pretty uh, lengthy there, Mike. <laughs> so, then, you know, what we're going to be talking about and what I just asked Mike was about his nervous system and about the sensations connected to his resources. And even during the direst of times, we can still cultivate that, even, even in the hardship of it all. And, I'm, and I don't want to trivialize the fact that, that many of you who are listening to this podcast are suffering, but we all have a nervous system. We have a body and mind designed for well-being and to heal. And when we pay attention to the sensations connected to our well-being, our bodies and our minds have an amazing way to work together to restore a, a sense of inner balance. And the more we focus our attention on this well-being, the more that it can expand. And what I've seen, even in the direst of, of situations around the world, I've seen people share their hope and their compassion with me, and I've seen it as they've given that hope and compassion to others. So I'm hoping as you're suffering that you also remember what else is true in your life because that can be cultivated even within these moments of great suffering. So, Ellen, Mike, can I add something yes, real quick? Please, because please I think, do. yes, I think that the, that's what I appreciate about those specific questions is what helps you get through hard times. It doesn't negate, it doesn't minimize, it doesn't trivialize the the, the hard times, the tragedy we may have experienced. It just opens up the view a little bit wider. It opens up our vista a little bit wider to say, well, what else is also true? So, even if we've experienced significant loss, even if we've experienced uh, significant um, tragedies. If we can answer those questions, even if it's just a little bit, that can open us up to a little bit of our, our nervous system just coming, coming back into balance enough. It doesn't take yes. away yeah. all of the, the sadness. 
we were just talking to a young man, Mike and I were, who was um, from South Central Los Angeles, who's had a pretty rough life, who's working with some inner city kids who've also had rough lives. And he's been sharing these skills with them. And he said, oh, the kids called it the rubber band. <laughs> I thought that was very cute. Yeah. But it was about that paying attention to that if they're distressed, that they have this ability, this flexibility inside of them to pay attention to that. Yeah. And of course, that's what we hope can expand. Yeah. So that brings us to the next question. We, you know, Mike and I talk about this term resiliency a lot, and we're going to give you our definition. But t- for us, the, the essence of resiliency is embodied well-being. And you can have embodied well-being even when everything around you is chaos. And we've seen that there are some ingredients that go along with that. First of all, to acknowledge the individual and collective suffering, but also that we can also lean into what are the, the, uh, the assets and the strengths. And Mike and I were talking before the show started. Mm-hmm. You tell, tell them the story about the, the person that you showed, the man who, who built the kitchen in the, in the middle of the well, street. I just love that. Yeah, I happened to be, you know, thumbing through the headlines for today. And I just happened across, uh, before I even knew what we were going to be talking about today, uh, happened across a story, a, a little Twitter post that said, that talked about this uh, gentleman that, that drove half an hour with a grill and a truckload of food and parked right in the middle of Mayfield, Kentucky to provide food for people that may need it. Well, the other thing is I, I was listening to the, I, the mayor of, of one of the cities and she said they uh, just last weekend, they had um, a tour of the different churches of the different Christian faiths. And one of the things that they said at the end was, oh, this was really nice to worship together. We should do this again. Well, there's only one of the four churches still standing. Wow. And so she goes, I didn't know how important that would be. So I mean, I kind of felt tears wow. in my eyes as I'm mean, just saying that because, you know, those to those, the, this story and the story that Mike just shared are those collective assets and strengths that we've seen all over the world. And yeah. we really, really want to encourage people to also pay attention to those because when we do that, the, you know, you know, believe it or not, what's been shared with us is kind of this optimism and hope, mm-hmm. and that also filled with this compassionate nature that you're talking about with this man um, who, you know, is now feeding a bunch of folks that he never thought he'd ever feed in his life. Yeah. So that we see that. And also, then what happens is this um, w- the repercussion is thinking about the solutions in very innovative ways to how do we rebuild our community? How do we rebuild our houses, our businesses? And, um, even though, as one person in New Orleans told me after Katrina, that ain't there no more. <laughs> it was no. this barbershop. Um, and he said, I never thought I'd miss my barbershop, but you kind of hung out there. But there's many things like that that you don't even know as you're evolving through this disaster of things that are going to be, you're going to be thinking about. But then no, the, the next question, the next thing was, you know what? That guy was a tough guy. He's going to, I bet you he's going to rebuild. So there's that little, again, that little grain of hopeful thinking that can happen when we're faced with these kinds of um, tragedies. So the next part, I'm going to turn over to Mike. Um, He's going to share with us, um, you know, quickly our common language of how we talk about the distress that we may be experiencing. Yeah. So one of the key, key concepts that we talk about in the community resiliency model is this, uh, what we call the resilient zone or the okay zone. And if you could imagine two parallel lines with maybe a a kind of a a wavy line in between those two, almost like hills and valleys, uh, and and you have this resilient zone within which we are at our best, we can think flexibly, we can can think creatively, we can problem solve, uh, we can get through our our day-to-day activities. Uh, It doesn't mean that we're just happy and in this kind of Zen state, although we could be at times when we're in our resilient zone. But really in that resilient zone is where we get through the day and we engage and problem solve. 
and the goal of the the model is to really widen that zone so that it gives us more room and more flexibility to engage. But but again, that being said, when we're in that okay zone, we can experience all sorts of thoughts, all sorts of feelings, all sorts of reactions that may not be all that pleasant. <clears throat> For example, we can be worried, we can be angry, we can be scared and still in our okay zone. We can be, how I say it is, we can be okay angry, we can be okay scared, we can be okay sad. If ever there were a time to be sad, this is it. <clears throat> That's normal. And we can be sad in our zone and still maybe do the things that we need to do to get through this day. But then there's also, we can be sad and outside of that zone. And so sometimes, and I don't know, Elaine, if you wanted to add anything before we move on to that. Well, I just wanted to say is that sometimes people, when they think about a resilient zone or a zone of well-being, I call it a lot, is that they think about, oh, it's just being calm and relaxed. But that's not what we're talking about. Well, you know, these are the, you know, emotions are part of the human experience and emotions are to be experienced. And so when we also experience them and we can say, gosh, I'm so sad about this. I'm, you know, grief stricken. And yet, I'm still showing up as my best self, but sometimes we can get so sad, and then we'll go to the next slide. We can talk about when we get stuck in other kinds of zones that then may be problematic for us to be present right now on all the tasks that we need to do and also in what we need to do in the future. Yeah, so in this next graphic, you know, imagine, again, those parallel lines, and instead of that, that nice, smooth, kind of rhythmic peaks and valleys, we have this lightning bolt that kind of comes in and we have a traumatic, stressful event or maybe uh, reminders of those traumatic and stressful events that can then knock that rhythm, uh, knock us out of rhythm. And so then it looks much more like a jagged line that kind of oscillates between what we call a high zone. And that high zone is where we become more edgy and irritable, maybe even manic. We experience anxiety and panic, angry outbursts, pain, any number of things that are in that high zone, uh, stuck where we get stuck in that high zone. But we can also go into what we call a low zone. And a low zone response would be more akin to like a depressed sadness, uh, isolation. Um, we may experience some exhaustion and fatigue, maybe some numbness. Um, again, those are just examples of what it could feel like in that low zone response. And so when those events happen, we can get knocked out of our resilient zone and stuck in these high zones. You know, going into the high zone, going to low zone, that's normal. That's going to happen. That's biology. But when we get stuck there, that's where it gets problematic because if I'm stuck in that high zone and I'm angry, 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 then if I go and interact with my kids, my interactions are going to be really hard. Or if I go to try to get the services that I need, to, to in, in the immediate aftermath, maybe my interactions are going to be really hard for, for some of the people that, that I'm trying to get services from. Likewise, I maybe get stuck in that low zone. If I'm stuck in that low zone and I'm, again, and I'm having to go get, figure out what paperwork to fill out, what things I need to do to get services, maybe I don't even have the energy and the mindset to be able to do that. I might be feeling like I'm in a fog and I can't think straight, kind of like what Elaine mentioned earlier. And so, if we're stuck there, that's the problem. So, the idea here is that these skills, ideally, these skills can be used to be able to help us become unstuck, to help us come back into our zone if we recognize that we're out of it and we're stuck. And it helps to have a common language because many of you may be experiencing a whole array of different symptoms. And we want to talk a little bit about that. Mike and I literally have been so many places around the world. I think we, our model has been brought to like 74 countries. And so we ask six questions. So since this event or during the event, did it, there were any changes in the way you thought about things, your emotions, your you know, physical symptoms, your spiritual, your spirituality, your behaviors, and your relationships. And you know that all around the world, People have given us 
the ex- almost exacting, wouldn't you say, Mike? The exact yeah, answers. Absolutely. So sometimes people say, "Oh, well, my thinking has changed. I, I'm, I'm forgetful. I sometimes my my thoughts are distorted. I think, well, is that neighbor looking at me in a strange way?" Um, I notice that I can. I almost feel like sometimes I'm not in my body. I feel like I'm floating outside of my body. Everything has been so bad, and even sometimes having nightmares, things like that. But also the emotions, you know, in terms of the ranges of, you know, I feel fear, um, depression, grief, guilt, shame, empathy, em, uh, em, apathy, and anxiety, and more. And why don't you talk about some of the physical symptoms, Mike, that we've seen? Well, my goodness, the physical symptoms can be any, I mean, a range of things, you know, again, that numb, numbness, we can just feel numb all over, or we can feel our heart rate just is racing, right? Or our breathing is short and shallow. Maybe we just feel that our body is just in a perpetual state of clench, right? Of tightness. Um, you can have stomach problems or, or maybe even some trembling, just constant, a little, little tremble, right? <clears throat> or maybe even sleep problems. Again, these are things that are commonly reported in the, in the aftermath of, of uh, events like this. Or I think about behavioral problems that are yes. that, that you, you often see, some right? Of those too, yes. Where you might see some isolation. You might see people pull away. You might see, uh, <laughs> I'd love to say this is just for kids, but oftentimes even adults, you might see some tantrums. You might see some aggressive behavior. Um, that's a common reaction. Maybe uh, you start to see violent behaviors or abusive behaviors that can come out in the aftermath of events like this. Well, I think there are some, there's some research that does show that there's an increase, there can be an increase in some in violent episodes. And that's why it's important that we understand that there's a physiology to this that we can actually change so that we don't have to hurt those that are around us. But also, you know, if someone is struggling with addictions, sometimes there, again, is there's, they want to feel better, or they just want to numb out. So they may, you know, turn to alcohol or other kinds of drugs or other kinds of addictions. So this is, there's a really kind of an urgency to learn I think skills of well-being, so that you can um, not fall into some of these traps that can also get us into trouble. But and then I think finally spiritually. I mean, we've seen such an range of people having greater faith, but also kind of when, when a person said to me once, "I feel like my faith has been deconstructed because I've been a good person, and yet this has happened to us." And we know that you know life is not fair. Um, we've learned that, and yet. Um, there can be, I think I've asked that question, what helps you get through all over the world? And whether someone was a Christian, a Hindu, um, a Muslim, a Buddhist, um, people have given me the same response, my faith more than anything else, my, my faith and my friends and family. So, but it can be shaken up. And I think that we just want, you know, that's an important thing um, for us to be aware of right now. But these are, so these are the common reactions that we've just talked about. But we also wanted to kind of do a little deeper dive into just touching upon um, that, you know, this, this horrible thing that just happened in Kentucky, but y'all are also dealing with COVID-19. You're dealing with, um, there's been societal unrest. There's been other things that have happened in your life. There may be someone struggling with cancer or some other kinds of things. So, what's what else is happening that we're seeing? And Mike, maybe we can go back and forth around this, but I've seen a polarization within families. Um, I've also seen there's a big fear of people catching and spreading the virus, for example, to loved ones. And here you're going to be maybe in a shelter. Are you really thinking about that? I'm sure some public health people are, but I mean, I think it opens up a whole other Pandora's box of other things that we can be concerned about. I know, Mike, if you want to, you know, maybe mention a couple things as well about additions. Absolutely. And in any kind of, you know, inequity that may have already been there prior to this, what, what I would say is a singular event, 
um, that that inequity may have already been there, and then it may even get magnified in how the services are provided and access to services. And so there's that that can uh, be there present uh, before this event, and then uh, magnified in this event. And of course, my goodness, some of the the things that were that may have already been there prior to this that are further complicated by this, like job, uh, financial housing, and food insecurity, or even just, I mean, how much this can disrupt and how much maybe there was already a disruption of social network and isolating that was there well before this event happened. And then again, complicated even further by this event. Well, and I'm just thinking about, like I saw some people interviewed today that were from the candle making factory. Mm-hmm. And there were, apparently there were about 100 people working a midnight shift. And, you know, they don't know the whereabouts of some that probably have yeah. died. And yet this was a community of, of folks. And that community is never going to be the same. And that adds to the fact of grief. People have lost loved ones. And there have been a great loss of life. And when that happens to any communities, the grief that is just woven into almost everything is there. And there needs to be whatever the expressions of those griefs, there's memorial services, there's funerals, all those kinds of things that we do as human beings to commemorate the people who have loved and died. But many of people have died way before their time. And so then when also, you know, like I'm an older person, so I, I hope that I um, that my children outlive me. But if my children have died as a result of this, then the way that we look at the world has been changed forevermore. So I think that there's just so many different avenues and different um, thoughts that we could probably talk a lot about. But I think there's another part that I want to go into right now. And Mike, we've seen this everywhere too. Um, some of the d- things that we just we just talked about, that gentleman who was cooking food in the middle of the street, um, we've seen people talk about their strength and their courage and that they didn't know they even had it. They've talked about, you know, sometimes not even liking their neighbor and all of a sudden their neighbor's helping them, you know, get some of their important things out of the destruction of their homes. But there can be those feelings of gratitude and all of a sudden they say, my goodness, go talk to her because she's the advocate for our neighborhood. She's going to make sure we get the food that we need right now to survive. Um, and I guess there's, you know, so many other things. We don't have to talk about every single common reaction connected to our well-being. Sometimes these things take a little bit of time to evolve. They don't happen right away. Um, and because also sometimes it can be interwoven with these, uh, the ideas of kind of transformation and forgiveness, but not always. I mean, I think that some of these things that we've seen haven't happened to each person at the exact same time. But we've also seen the possibility of that, I guess, maybe in that optimism and hope of what happens to human beings, you know, really around the world. So, I don't know if you have anything to add to that, Mike. No. So, let's talk a little bit about, you know, why a biological model. And right now, some of you may be experiencing um, things in your body. Uh, You may have lots of different kinds of thoughts and thinking. You may feel, I can't really focus very well. But we want to talk a little bit about... um, um, the brain and the um, the importance of understanding survival responses in what you've just experienced, and what we're going to do is we're going to we're going to save the crux of this until after our break. We're going to go into our break right now, and um, when we come back, Mike and I will talk more about what happens, the neuroscience perspective about what happens, because we want you all to know it's not about being physically weak, if you have certain reactions, it's your biology. And we're going to also teach you some very simple skills that might be able to help you in the next days and weeks to come. Um, And also going to give you some resources of where to go to 
if you've gotten a little appetizer today that may help you in a, in a larger way as you're going through this ex- experience right now. So hang on. We're going to come back in a couple minutes, and Dr. Michael Sapp and I will continue to talk about what might be helpful for you. All right. See you back in a, in a, in a couple minutes. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. The Trauma Resource Institute is a nonprofit organization cultivating trauma-informed and resiliency-focused individuals and communities worldwide. Our mission is to take people from despair to hope. We believe in a world where every child and adult has the capacity to recover from highly stressful and traumatic experiences. Check out iChill, our free app that helps you learn the wellness skills of the community and trauma resiliency models. Go to TraumaResourceInstitute.com for more information. Elaine Miller-Karras' book, Building Resiliency to Trauma, The Trauma and Community Resiliency Models, is available on Amazon.com. The book is about how to cultivate resiliency during and in the aftermath of traumatic experiences. The book also addresses body-based trauma interventions combined with psychoeducation about the biology of trauma and resiliency. Elaine also offers personal consultations. For more information, you can contact her at elaine at resiliencywithin.com. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. Elaine Miller-Karras co-founded the Trauma Resource Institute, Incorporated. The Institute provides trainings on the models Elaine developed, the Community Resiliency Model, or CRM, and the Trauma Resiliency Model, or TRM. If you would like more information about the Trauma Resource Institute or how to participate in trainings, visit the Institute's website at traumaresourceinstitute.com. That's traumaresourceinstitute.com. Trauma Resource Institute. Build resilience. Awaken hope. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. This is Resiliency Within with Elaine miller Karras. To reach the show during our live broadcast, please call in to 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to elaine at resiliencywithin.com. Now, back to this week's show. I'm here with Michael Sapp, and we are talking about how we can help some of our colleagues, our friends, people we may know in Kentucky and other places around the world that may be experiencing distress 
Um, we are, our hearts, our prayers go out to the people of Kentucky right now, and we're hoping that learning a little bit about the community resiliency model skills will be helpful. So what we're going to turn to now is I'm going to talk a little bit about the organizing principles of the brain, because this is important for you all to know as you've gone through this experience. So this, this um, tornado came unexpectedly. We, you weren't expecting it to happen. You were doing whatever your activities were at that time when it hit. And so then when something so happens so quickly, so fast, your, your survival brain takes over. There's a part of your, your brain that will go into a fight, flight, or freeze, and it happens unconsciously. You're not thinking, oh, I need to, you know, I have to, I have to flee, I have to get out of here. Your body just starts to move. But if the threat is so big that sometimes you can't physically move, and I think that was the case for some of you that were trapped in buildings, you go into what's called a freeze response. It's a physiological state where your whole body slows down. It's also meant for it to help you survive, um, but it also can make you feel foggy and numb and also forgetful. But there's also something that happens. We have natural opioids in our, own, our system that helps dull the pain if we were injured so that we don't experience it in the same way. But how does the survival brain know that it's supposed to do this? is there's a part of our brain in the limbic area of our brain, which is in the mid, mid, mid part of our brain. It's called the amygdala. And the amygdala is your threat appraiser. So it's meant to do things quickly. And so that amygdala will, will, will cue the survival brain to do something unconsciously. And I, and I really want to emphasize this because some people have said to me after disasters, I can't believe I, I just started running, but my, my grandmother was still in the house and why did I leave her there? And so then there can be terrible guilt, but to know that those survival strategies are designed for, because we're designed to survive. They're not, desi- they're not designed to think about, oh, I need to remember my grandmother. They're really designed for your own survival. And so there can be just a, a whole array of guilt feelings afterwards, but to know that that was your, your, your body um, responding because the threat was so great. And so if the limbic area of your brain is, is uh, cueing the survival brain to take over, your thinking brain is not operating in the same way. So that's why a lot of us feel fuzzy and that we even sometimes they can say, I was scared speechless. Some people are scared shitless because the fear is so great that it affects our entire physiology. And to know that doesn't mean if you were scared, speechless, that you're weak or you're a coward. It just means your biology was working in that way because the threat was so great to the human nervous system that it it responded unconsciously automatically in that way. And I want to talk a little bit more about the amygdala because um, the amygdala is the part of your brain. You have two actually. I need both sides of the brain. And it creates like templates from highly charged emotional memories. Some of you have lived out there in the Midwest for a long time or in the South, and you're, you're used to tornadoes. So it may have just even felt the wind and had a response to it. So it generalizes information to sound that alarm if there is a real threat or a perceived threat. And the perceived threat is important for me to talk about right now, because many of you may notice that if you see a, a certain climate start to happen in, in in the part of Kentucky that you live, that all of a sudden your your whole body starts to shake, your your heart rate speeds up, and you're going, "What is that? I, I, there's no tornado right now," but your amygdala knows that that is a sign of maybe a tornado. So it's sounding that alarm to you, even though there isn't really any. You don't see a tornado right now, but it's saying this reminds me enough of to sound the alarm. And as you can imagine, if this is happening all the time to you every cloudy day, it can get pretty 
um, alarming to you, and you can be living all your your life in these states of activation, we call it. So we want to help you understand those sensations so that you know how to work with your own nervous system if the amygdala is sounding an alarm when everything is safe, but it's not turning off. That's kind of when we can get stuck in that high zone or in that low zone. So, um, Mike, do you want to talk about the survival responses a little bit more than what I've mentioned? I mentioned it just briefly. Yeah, sure. You know, survival responses are really automatic responses. Automatic, like you said. We don't think about it. It's just automatic, excuse me, responses that occur during times when we perceive a threat. We respond instinctively to survive. Our nervous system works for our protection. Now, if the environment is threatening or perceived to be threatening, the person we may live in a constant state of distress. So that's almost like like what uh, Elaine, what you're saying about right that even a, a little wind, a little breeze could start to um, uh, remind us of what may have happened before and put us into high alert in in ways that we may not have before, right? And so that that's what when we talk about it resetting the nervous system so that even small reminders can release an automatic survival responses. Again, that's our nervous system working for our protection. It just means that we need to fine tune it. We need to do these skills so that we can recalibrate our, our nervous system so that it is picking up the threat when it needs to, because we don't want to turn that system off, right? We need the fight flight response. We need that freeze response that actually helps us to survive. It helps increase the likelihood of survival. And then one other uh, survival response that doesn't often get t- talked about is the tend and befriend response. This idea that our survival, it can be rooted with our children, with our partners, with our coworkers, with people around us, that maybe we in our, in our attempt to survive also scoop up, also protect, also, you know, what I often will say is almost like that, uh, what I lovingly referred to as mom arm when I was driving with my mom and she slammed on the brakes, maybe to prevent us from getting an accident, her arm would instinctively go out across my chest, even though I have a seatbelt on, right? But that's that tend and befriend response that often can occur. And so our survival gets tied up with those around us as well. Yes. So we want to talk a little bit about the autonomic nervous system because some of you may be experiencing this. So when, you know, when there's something like the tornado hits, um, our sympathetic nervous system, which is preparing for us uh, for action, is really meant to, to respond, right? The fight and flight response. We need to have the, um, all the uh, energy in our body is going to our extremities and to our arms and legs to get away from the threat. And so going along with that is a rapid heart rate. Um, our breathing rate is faster and shallower. Um, if we had a blood pressure cuff on, our blood pressure would be up. We might start to sweat. Stress hormones are being pumped into our system. At, at that time, we don't need our digestion and our saliva, for example. So that kind of shuts down a bit. And so when the threat is over, the, the way the system works is once you go into a sympathetic reaction, that the parasympathetic would come back when you're in a state of being in a safer situation. It prepares us for rest. So the breathing rate comes back into a more normal rhythm. Our heart rate slows down. You know, blood pressure comes back into more normal range. If the stress hormones are pumping, that's that's shut off. And we can even feel our digestion coming back on by sometimes hearing our, our belly rumble and we can feel the saliva in our mouth. But for some of us, when we have something like this that just happened in Kentucky, it's like someone has put the foot on the accelerator of our car, on the sympathetic. And so we may feel like we are always jacked up. And that can be problematic for us to ever feel like we feel a little bit better in our, in our body. And after a while, that's when we get so constricted. So we're going to teach you some skills in just a minute about how you can access your parasympathetic if you feel like that accelerator is on 
and it is not letting up because it only can stay up there for so long before you also do what's called an adrenaline dump. And then you go into that low zone and then you're so disconnected. You're, you know, you're, you may just fall asleep in a chair and people go, you're so exhausted. And sometimes you may or may not feel rested when you get up because of this going between these hyper and hypo, they call it a hypo aroused state. So think about it going into way high zone and way low zone states. So, you know, we're just going to, um, we want to really get to the, the this this part, and I'm, Mike's going to talk about the biology versus mental weakness right now. Well, well, and I think that's a what that last slide really emphasizes, right? That it's about the biology. It's not. It's the biology of the human nervous system working for our survival. It's the sympathetic nervous system working for our survival. It's the parasympathetic nervous system ideally coming back on so that we can rest, so that we can reset, so that then when we encounter our next challenge, we can we can use the sympathetic. So it's it's about finding that rhythm. And when we get out of rhythm, it's it's our behaviors are not the result of our mental weakness and flaws in our system. It's that our biology is is stuck in a, in a certain way, right? So when we talk about the, uh, there being common human reactions, which we did already, right? Uh, to traumatic or stressful events, that those common reactions affect the mind, body, and spirit. That those biology, our, our nervous systems uh, working to our survival is going to affect our, our mind, our body, and our spirit. And that ideally, these skills help individuals learn to read our nervous system. It helps us learn how to read our nervous system to help us return to our zone, that okay zone, that zone of well-being, uh, just through using these wellness skills. So we're going to teach you some skills now in the time that we have left. And the first one that we want to teach you is called Help Now. There's six skills in the community resiliency model. And we're going to teach you tracking and resourcing and help now. Maybe grounding if we have time. But if you, we don't get enough time to teach you everything that we want to teach you, we're going to, we're going to tell you about the free app that you can listen to today. You can download and you can really reinforce the skills. But the most important thing, and I really want to say this to the adults, it's important for you to put that mask of well-being on yourself first because that's going to help the kids. That's going to help everybody around you. And it's just like if you've ever ridden on a plane, they always, have you, they always talk about the oxygen mask and say, if you have a little one with you, make sure you put it on first. So the first one we're going to talk about is it's actually our skill five, but we're going to talk about it first. It's called conversational help now, and the help now, um, the help now skill is to use when you're way out of your zone in the higher low zone, which many of you could be right now, and many of your children could be. So these are very simple ways to help you get back into your zone, and we're going to just take you through some right now. Um, and Mike and I are just going to take turns one after another as if Mike was in his high zone or low zone. I'd say, hey, Mike, would it be helpful if we go for a walk together? Or maybe I would ask Elaine, right? Sometimes it helps to get the energy of anxiousness out by pushing against the wall with our hands or pushing our back against the wall. Do you want to do that with me? And I'd probably say yes. But then, <laughs> and then maybe I'd say, hey, Mike, you know, can I get you a drink of water? Sometimes just even have a drink of water is helpful right now. Or maybe sometimes it can help to look around the room and see what catches your attention. You know, is there a color, for example, that you like? And then I might say, when I'm not feeling like my best self, I found it helpful to remember a time in my life that was better than this moment. Hmm. Because that helps the person get into present moment awareness and not thinking about what happened yesterday or what they have to do in the future, but it brings them right to the present moment. And then the next one, Mike. Well, if I'm anxious, sometimes it helps me to count down from 20. Sometimes I even 
up it to maybe a hundred <laughs> or down it to 10 or yeah. down it to 10, right? Yes. Uh, would you like to try it with me? Yeah. And then I also found <clears> this help called, I, this help. I have also found it helpful for the iChill app and you can listen to it. And when you're down or too anxious and you might want to even download it today, it's, it's, it's free on the, uh, on the iTunes store or the, the Android store. So, okay, now Mike and I are going to take you from the help now strategies to tracking. And tracking is one of my favorite skills. So, Mike, do you want me to start out with tracking and then you can do resourcing? Okay. So, it's a foundation for helping you stabilize the nervous system. And it means just paying attention to the sensations in your body that are we want you to be able to learn to tell the difference between sensations of distress and well-being. So that means you also have to pay attention to the stress, but you don't have to stay there. You can say, like, let's say I'm feeling, I'm feeling tension in my arms. I might say, is there any place in my body where I'm not feeling tension? Oh, well, my legs feel better. If I bring my attention to my legs and pay attention to the movement and that they're not tight, all of a sudden my upper torso starts to lighten and to release and not become so tight. So, because what we know is what we pay attention to grows. It's like a garden, right? And if we decided to to plant flowers, but we only paid attention to the weeds and and put water on the weeds, the weeds are going to take over. So, those can be like our sensations of distress. If If they get in those stuck states, that wouldn't be good to pay so much attention to them. Let's try to see if we can cultivate our sensations of well-being, but in the beginning, it can feel almost like a magnetic pull oh my gosh, it's so much easier to pay attention to the weeds than to the flowers in the garden. But this is based on a neuroscience theory that brain cells that fire together, wire together. Again, what you pay attention to grows. So the more you pay attention to your well-being, the more you're able to shift your attention to well-being and be able to stand in those lines and do all the different things that you're going to have to do to cultivate your well-being right now. So when we talk about sensations, a sensation is a physical experience in the body, and we have billions of receptors all over our body. And what we've seen is that every life experience, every like all those reactions we were talking about, all those feelings, for example, have corresponding sensations in the body as well as our thoughts and our and also the meanings that we have about our lived experience. So if you look at the there's a uh, a graphic that we have that shows um, colors that are more illuminated when you experience happiness and love, for example, and they're more uh, and they're they're more obscure when you're in in, in uh, experiencing um, depression, or if you're uh, experiencing sadness. So what we're trying to do is help you pay attention to those ways that you bring greater well-being by paying attention to these sensations. Because for most of us, we've grown up knowing people have asked us, well, what do you think about what just happened? Or what do you feel about what just happened? But hardly anybody ever says, well, what do you sense about what's happening? And what we're trying to do is add this kind of awareness, this doorway, so to speak, of paying attention to your sensations of well-being. Because there's a lot of neuroscience that is saying to us that our ability to observe body sensations in response to how we think, feel, and move actually helps us have better impulse control, and we can control our emotions better. So it's just like, you know, if it's cold outside and you walk outside with just a t T-shirt, you may say, oh, it's cold. Uh, you're, you're reading through your sensor, sensory system the temperature. You go back in the house and you get a coat. So you actually, you make an action. So basically what we're saying is that when you start paying attention to your sensations of well-being, it also is a way of you promoting greater well-being in your actions as well and what you do. So 
what we are going to invite you to start thinking about is what do you notice on the inside? Are the sensations pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral? And we're going to invite you to start cultivating sensory words. For example, temperature could be cold, hot, warm, neutral. Um, if you were saying, oh, well, my heart is beating fast, slow. It's, oh, I think it's rhythmic. Oh, it's fluttering. It's jittery. Or let's say your uh, muscles are tight, loose, calm, or rigid. So we want you to start thinking about sensory words to also describe your well-being. And the, the very best way to learn how to um, <laughs> sense your body is through what Mike's going to talk about right now, which are sensation words. Now, and I just want you to say, Mike, we need to do this really quick because I don't want to miss out doing the, the resourcing after a crisis. So go right ahead. Absolutely. So basically a resource, uh, as I define it, when I uh, explain it to people is anything that we bring to mind that can help us uh, feel some sense of uh, peace, calm, strength, um, any kind of well-being. And so that, and it can be anything. It can be uh, a memory. It can be a person. It could be a thing. Um, It can be imaginary. It can be a character in a movie. It can be a character from a book. It can be a song. Anything can be a resource for us. And when we bring that resource to mind, then we want to pay attention to the sensations that may accompany it, the pleasant sensations or the neutral sensations that may accompany it. Right. And so, um, so we do that by expanding it. We want to identify the resource, but we want to, we also want to really think about all the details about that resource, because the more details we think about, the more, the deeper, the uh, the more likely we will experience more and more uh, sensations of well-being that we'd be able to pay attention to easier. Anything else you want to expand? Well, I just want you know. So what we really want you to do, you know, your homework assignment that will you will will never be able to grade, is for you to <laughs> spend some time after this this broadcast is over, and to think about your resource, to think about the details of your resource, and as you think about them, try to savor the sensations that are connected to that resource. And, and then to notice, you know, do your muscles relax? Do your breathing slow down? This is a way that we access that parasympathetic nervous system that can downregulate you from being in sympathetic hyper-aroused states right now because of what's happened in your part of Kentucky or anything that any of you are experiencing around the world that's causing you distress. But what we really also want to um, not leave today without is talking to you about what Mike and, and I have learned, and we'll go through this just like we did with conversational help now, is that you can use the community resiliency model during or after a crisis. And these are resource-focused questions that you can not only ask yourself, but ask the people that you care about, right? That these are questions that can be very easily integrated into a conversation. And I think, having, I think Mike, we would both say that when we go to a disaster, these are the questions yes. that we focus on. Oh, hands, first, down. Yes. hands down. Hands down. So, so, and these don't necessarily aren't like in chronological order. They could be used in any different order. But the first I'll say is who helped you the most in the beginning? Or can you remember the moment that help arrived? Or can you remember the moment that you knew you were going to survive? Who else made it through? And what gives you strength to get through this now? Or maybe when you have experienced other difficult times in your life, what or who helped get you through? And who is helping you the most now? Or what is helping you get through now? So as you can see, these questions are pretty simple and can be very easily integrated into a conversation when you're just talking to a neighbor. And and, uh, and Elaine, can I add, because I think sometimes when I ask it in the other way, like when I think about resource in the other way, it would be, it would be 
I think somewhat disrespectful for me to say to someone that has experienced tragedy, hey, can we bring to something to mind that makes you feel good? Well, that that may be really hard to do really in the wake of this, right? But if yes. you can ask these questions, we're asking people to think about their resource and without saying it in that way. Well, and I can just think of so many different examples. I can remember when we were in Typhoon, um, uh, Yolanda, and a gentleman was in the audience and we were teaching these skills and asking these questions. He said, I can remember the moment I was going to survive. I'd been in the water for like six hours and someone reached and yeah. I saw a boat and this man reached his hand towards me and that's the moment. And he just started smiling and he cried, but not yeah. tears of sadness. Uh, it was tears of gratitude. Yeah. And so I really want to emphasize these particular questions. And then the next questions um, as well, and that is, you know, people have died and people have lost everything. They've lost their homes as they know it. Sometimes just giving some concrete kinds of help, like, can I get you some water, blanket, food, if that's available to them? But I think the other thing, if a person has died, it's going to depend on the person, but I'm just present with them. There's tears that come, of course. And, you know, sometimes people want to tell you everything about what happened. And I also try to find out about this person. I said, well, can you tell me about him? What did you love about him? And be very respectful as I do this. Can you tell me some memories that you remember? And those people have said to me, well, aren't I going to make it worse? Actually, people want to usually relish in the memory of that person, that beloved person. And But there's also some questions that I've learned are like, what kind of words of encouragement would they say to you during difficult times? It's also almost you're calling that person into the present moment, even though they've died. And, they'd, and, you know, I've heard people say, oh, my grandmother would have said to me, honey, you can do this. You can get through this. A woman in Haiti after the earthquake told me her fiance would have said, you take care of my, our families. And I said, are you? She goes, you bet I am. And then she goes, what else would he have said? He would tell me to have Jesus in my heart. And I said, well, do you still have Jesus in your heart? She goes, he's right here in my heart. But so I think those kinds of questions, too, can just become so important. Um when people are in those kind of situations. And the final thing we want to share with you is just here's the, here's the iChill app again, and to know that it's in English and Spanish. But the other thing is when you learn about the app and you go and use it, you'll see that um, it's, has a, it's interactive and it's going to ask you, are you in your resilience zone today? You can actually interact with it so you can see whether you're in your higher low zone. And if you're in your higher low zone, you can do one of the skills to bring you back into your zone of well-being. Now, Mike, we only have a couple minutes left, so I'm just wondering if there's anything that you would like to share with them. I just want to say uh, I, what I have what long loved about this model is that it doesn't negate or minimize the tragedy. It doesn't negate or minimize the, the loss or sadness. It helps us ideally see what else is also true amongst amidst all of that sadness and grief and loss. It doesn't negate that we have experienced that, but it also highlights the strength and the, 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 the inner and collective strengths that we have to help us move through uh, th- this type of event. Well, and you know, I, I say, you've heard me say this very yeah. <laughs> many ways, but when we bring awareness to the inner wisdom of our bodies, well-being can grow even in times of great suffering. And moments of gratitude can be seen and sensed. And so I want to remind our listeners that you can reach the Trauma Resource Institute at www.traumaresourceinstitute.com. 
Com. There's lots of resources where you can get more information and, and there's more webinars that you can take that are for free if you want to um, cultivate some of these skills. And also, you can also send us an email through Elaine at resiliencywithin.com. You also can send an um, uh, email to the Trauma Resource Institute through their website and they can offer uh, um, ideas of other resources for you. And I just want to say to all of our listeners, wherever you may be, those of you listening from Kentucky and other places around the world, remember that we do have this incredible way that we've been designed. Um, And we're designed not only to experience our suffering, but to experience our well-being. And that there can be this core of of wellness inside of us, even when we're we're suffering. And so with that, um, until next time, um, this is your host, Elaine miller Karras signing off until next week. And Michael Sapp, I want to just thank you from the bottom of my heart for being with me on this journey. We didn't know we were going to change the show today, but you did it <laughs> with Glad me. We did. Glad and we've we did. done this many times, haven't we? <laughs> yeah. So anyway, so God bless you, Mike. And, and thank you again yes. for being here. And remember, everyone, what else is true in your life as you go through whatever you're experiencing. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us this week for Resiliency Within. Please tune in again next Monday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time and 1 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Elaine miller Karras on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We'll talk again soon. Resiliency Within, with host Elaine miller Karras is brought to you by Trauma Resource Institute, Incorporated. Visit TraumaResourceInstitute.com.